Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Wild Brood Podcast. I know it's been a hot minute since I have posted any episodes, but I have a really good excuse. I am finally working in the field that I have always wanted to work in, conservation. And the past few months have been the most educational, entertaining, fun, hair-tearing, frustrating, amazing months of my entire life, and I would not have it any other way. But as I have learned, when it comes to conservation, it demands almost all of your time. And so any passion projects that I had, immediately took a backseat. And that is okay. That is just what happens. But now that the birds have stopped leaving their calcium-encased organic deposits in tree branches and running into windows and other general mayhem, I finally have a few minutes of free time to myself. So here I am. I actually recorded this interview before I got that job, but I immediately got that job after this interview. And so it has been eating me alive that I have not been able to release this episode until now. But that's just the way life works sometimes. Today, my guest is someone incredibly special and I cannot wait for you to hear his words of wisdom. It is none other than Dr. Murray Roberts, the foremost specialist in cold water coral. Sure. So my name is Murray Roberts, and I'm a professor of applied marine biology and ecology at the University of Edinburgh. I am incredibly fortunate to have Dr. Murray Roberts on this podcast because this man is super busy. He splits his time between teaching his students, doing cold water coral research, and influencing global policy. So to have him on this podcast is such a rare treasure. I cannot thank him enough. This episode is split into two parts, one dealing with the history and biological sciences of the cold water coral, and part two, which deals with the ecosystem services that these crazy animals provide us, and actual true practical solutions on how we can conserve and protect this absolutely unique animal. Now, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this episode. And as always, I like to start my interviews with some silly questions. Let's dive in. I always like to ask people what their favorite animal is, but I feel like I should ask you what your favorite deep sea coral is instead. (laughs) When I was a kid, I think my favorite animal was a penguin, and I'm still quite attached to them, to be quite honest with you. Um, And they're just wonderful. I remember doing a school project on penguins and thought maybe in another life I would have probably studied birds, actually, and, and animal behavior, but I've ended up doing different things. Now you're out there at the uh, the last frontier, which is really exciting. And then this, I don't know if this is more of an American thing, but if you drink coffee, what is your favorite coffee? Or what's your beverage of choice? Well, I think recently I've started drinking flat white coffee. I enjoy those. Really nice. Uh, I'm not too keen on Starbucks when, when I'm talking to Americans. I find the Starbucks roast isn't, isn't really all that nice. I prefer a sort of Italian roasts, I think. Any honest American will tell you that Starbucks is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Perfect. Well, uh, Dr. Murray, I am so honored to have you on the show today. When I reached out to uh, a future guest we'll have here, uh, Charlie Matthews with the Shark Lab Malta, he told me, I asked him, who would you recommend I talk to about, you know, this topic? And he's like, oh, hands down, you need to talk to my old professor. And it's funny because I was like, wait a minute. I recognize that name because for Christmas, my mom actually got me this book and oh, you were funny. in it. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, for yes. any listeners, it's a Coral Whisperer Scientist on the Brink, which I think my mom meant, she meant well by getting it to me, but I actually cried 
Christmas Eve all because there's some sad news in there uh, re- regarding corals and it's yeah um, I know there is some there is sad news I'm afraid yeah and it's quite hard to hard to get around that and to, to retain optimism but we, we need to do the best we can actually yes I agree and th- so that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to bring this ocean series to the inland U.S. where you know we don't really think about the oceans and when it comes to conserving things it's so important for people to see them and the topic that we're going to discuss today cold water corals they're so unseen, it's, it, they almost like, they fit the textbook definition of out of sight, out of mind. So I'm very excited to have you here today to talk about these. So my first question is, is where can these cold water corals be found? And when we're talking about cold water corals, how cold is cold? So to start with where they're found, they're found in, in the deeper waters of the ocean, but sometimes those deep waters get forced up shallower. So if we think of fjords, like uh, off off the coast of Norway and the sea lochs off Scotland, you get deep waters that get just forced up shallower and the corals will grow at quite shallow depths. So some people use the terms interchangeably deep sea coral, cold water coral, but actually it's the sort of temperature that's often a better way of discriminating them from the other type of coral that most people have heard of, the shallow tropical corals that build those gorgeous coral reefs and coral atolls um, out there in the tropics. But cold water corals aren't restricted to tropical latitudes. They're found in cold waters right throughout the the whole world, actually. So they're found often in the deep sea because the water's colder there. And we could talk maybe more about why they're found, where they're found. But they're fundamentally different to the tropical corals. So the reason that corals occur where they they do, primarily in the deep sea uh, and in these cold waters, relates to food. You know, these are animals. They're, they're not rocks. They're not plants. They're animals. And they're animals that look like tiny sea anemones with polyps and tentacles that come from those polyps that catch things that are brought to them in the water currents. So they're often found in areas where the currents are fast and, that, and, and critically, those fast currents are supplying rich food. And it's like living in a soup almost. And that soup has plankton. It has particles of nutrition that is generated up in the surface where the plant plankton photosynthesize, they catch the, catch the sun's energy, they grow, they feed animal plankton, and this rains down through and into the deep sea. Where we tend to find the corals, we're getting currents that move that fresh food down really quickly, and the corals boom, uh, and they can grow quite surprisingly fast, and they form really amazing habitats. There's different types of coral that form different types of habitats. So when we're talking about cold water, how cold? So again, it depends, but we're talking typically sort of between 4 and 11, 12 degrees centigrade. For those of us who still deny the superiority of the metric system, that would be 39 degrees Fahrenheit to roughly 52 degrees Fahrenheit. That kind of thing. But you'll find cold water corals locally adapted to areas in the Mediterranean Sea, let's say, or the Gulf of Mexico, which are, you know, a bit warmer, maybe up to 14, 15 degrees centigrade. But really, we're not ever getting up to the temperatures like the 22, 28, Mm -hmm. 30 degrees that you might find tropical corals growing at. That's roughly 72 degrees to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. So like tepid bath water. And the cold water corals are not reliant directly on sunlight. They're reliant indirectly, um, as we were talking about, in terms of how the food is fed down to the corals. But they themselves don't rely on sunlight. Whereas in the tropics, lots of tropical corals have little algal cells in their tissues that directly catch the sun's rays, photosynthesize to produce sugars and help feed the coral animal. 
that symbiosis doesn't occur in the deep sea. It's dark. There's no photosynthesis going on. So the corals rely on that nice uh, coupling and the fast flowing currents that bring the food down to them. That's really interesting. Going back just a little bit, they're down there. It's cold. It's not like people are just going to these cold water locations because it's a fun tropical area. So how were cold water, how were these corals even discovered in the first place? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, there's always been a very strong link between the scientists that are studying these corals and, and fishing, people that are fishing, fishermen that have brought them up, snagged them in their lines or snagged them in their nets. So a lot of the early earliest records came there, uh, but actually... Even scientists themselves back in the 19th century were trying to figure out ways of dredging and dragging nets through the deep sea. Uh, and when steam engines were invented, scientists very quickly put steam engines onto sailing vessels and went to sea with little engines that could pull the dredges back up. And when they did that in the Norwegian fjords, they brought up these dredges loaded with corals, all kinds of life. In fact, it was one of the first instances where scientists realized, oh goodness, there's life in the deep dark ocean. We never knew it was there. It was corals that gave them those first insights. In fact, catalyzed in the late 19th century, a guy called Charles Wyville Thompson, who was also, he was at the University of Edinburgh. And in, the, uh, in 1873, so exactly 150 years ago, he launched the Challenger Expedition following up on those observations and going out to explore the whole global ocean to see, well, is it really the case that we have life in the deep sea everywhere? Or and they were also very curious about whether the deep sea was home to living fossils. That's a big debate at the time. So that expedition ran five years. I mean, a massive, a superhuman effort, really, by the whole team involved. And it just changed, changed the world. You know, we don't hear about it enough, but the Challenger expedition changed the world because we understood then the diversity of life in the oceans across our planet. We made a huge number of fundamental discoveries, inventing many of the techniques of oceanography and marine biology that we use to this day. But when you look back at like between like 1850 and in that range of extreme exploration, there seems to be this deep, intense human drive to understand the natural world. That I wonder if that, that doesn't seem to exist today. Why do you think that is? Well, I wonder if it still exists, but it's just mm -hmm. somewhat different now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're tensioned in different ways now. I think back then there, there were in many ways, you know, the, the planet we live on, at least from that sort of confine of, the, of, our, of, of a Western, European or North American perspective, much of the world felt unexplored. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people did live there and it was relatively well explored, but the deep ocean wasn't. I mean, no one had looked. There, were no, there was no way of looking. So the technology had to develop, in this case, a dredge and a ship that could go out and explore what lived in the deep ocean. And I think that led to a huge, you know, people often refer to this kind of heroic era of marine biology and exploration. And in fact, many of the, you know, august institutions um, like the Woods Hole Oceanographic, slightly later, but the Naples Marine Station, like we in Scotland, our Scottish Association for Marine Science, Marine Biological Association, they were all founded around 1880 or so. In fact, in Scotland, our, our learned association was, was spawned by the Challenger Expedition. The people that set it up then set up the Learned Society when they, when they got home. It started in Edinburgh and then it moved over uh, eventually to the west coast of Scotland where it remains to this day. So I think that kind of drive is still there mm -hmm. and people still have the same curiosity, but it's now tensioned around, you know, the things that we need to understand. We need to understand the implications of what we've done to the planet. We need mm -hmm. to understand the implications of global change. Mm -hmm. But we can't do that unless we actually have that same kind of heroic view of let's have a good, really 
fundamental baseline understanding of the natural history of our planet. Because if we don't have that, what hope do we have of understanding how it's going to change? Right. It's fascinating. But we have this technology now to really get to the meat and potatoes of it. So when you're out on an expedition, how are you studying these corals? So what we typically rely on, there'll there'll be various techniques and approaches depending on what we're trying to do. Some of the old techniques are still incredibly relevant, but we tend not any longer to rely on dredging and trawling because it's just too destructive. Mm -hmm. We've really moved away from that and we've entered an era where I suppose we've um, you know, we, we, we send the robots in, basically. Mm-hmm. So we can send aut- uh, both autonomous systems, but also remotely operated systems. And they're, they're probably my favorite in many ways. The little robot submarines that have a tether back up to the ship. And so they, are communicate, they communicate back with you and you can control them from the ship. So they give you your hands and your eyes on the deep sea floor. You can explore the deep sea remotely through that vehicle. So they're called remotely operated vehicles or ROVs. These are like the workhorse. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's possible to get in a human-occupied vehicle, a submersible, go down yourself. I've I've been lucky enough to do that a few times in my career with the Germans, also the Americans who still operate manned subs. We stopped in the UK, sadly, back in the 1970s. And when you have your own eyes down there, it's amazing. You do make connections to that environment that you otherwise look at remotely Mm -hmm. through a TV screen or from the samples that come back to you. And you do make a connection. I remember in Norway, sitting in the Yago submersible, looking at the deep sea corals I'd worked on for, by then, about 20 years, but I'd never seen that close. And I noticed that they were fusing together and different colors of coral were fusing. And that was really strange because they're often, they're different colors. So they're different genetic types of the same species. They're not the same individual so why are they fusing and, and how on earth does that happen? And so we actually studied it. We looked at the genetics and what we uncovered was really one of the critical things that this type of coral, I think, evolved to do. And that's produce a complex framework, right? a really like a mesh. And that mesh traps the sand that's moving along the seafloor, the mud, and it baffles it. It gets caught up. And as that happens, it grows up from the seafloor. More corals can grow on top. If the corals keep up and keep growing then you, you find a mound developing. Now, why is that good for the coral? Well, it's getting above the seabed in a better place to catch its food. Mm-hmm. And it's engineering a deep sea coral reef. And so noticing that from the submersible was actually really fundamental. It's another adaptation that makes these things mound producing machines. And in fact, when we pull back and we look at these places, the other critical technology that I, I must mention is that we can map uh, the seabed in so much detail these days you know, it would just knock the socks off Victorian naturalists if they knew what we could now do. Floating above the deep sea floor, pinging sound waves down from the ship and painting a picture in sound of the deep ocean and bring it up, bringing it out in full, beautiful, multicolored resolution. It's just amazing. And that's how we go out to kind of untouched territory. We map with sound. We see the shapes and structure on the sea floor. And then we lower a camera or a remotely operated vehicle and actually see visually what's down there. So that's there's many other techniques and approaches we could talk about. But the fundamentals, first you map and then you describe visually and you, you characterize the habitats. So that's absolutely fascinating because before I did a little tiny bit of research before this, I did not know, one, that they even existed, and two, that they were making these reef analogs. And then you just mentioned they're fusing and making these mounds. You know, with the warm water corals, colonies that aren't related like to kill each other. But mm-hmm. you had just mentioned that these corals are like, like, I don't know, 
have they have peace talks, I guess. I They're cooperating. Yeah. It's that's crazy because their warm water cousins are like, no, don't touch me. And then you have these deep sea corals that are that are doing yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and fundamentally, there's a few types of coral that do this. So the first thing to say is that corals come in all shapes and sizes, literally. So coral isn't a very specific term. It's a bit like if I was referred to a bug or a worm, you know, you wouldn't really know what kind of, am I talking about an insect? Am I talking about a spider? Am I talking about, uh, I don't know, a scorpion? You don't really know, just referred to a bug. Coral's a bit like that. There's various types of animal, but they're all closely related to sea anemones and they all produce some kind of long-lasting skeleton. That skeleton can be made of different stuff. It might be quite flexible and kind of have a lot of protein in it and it bends in the currents, or it might be very rigid and very stony. So the tropical corals that build those reefs are stony corals. And there are stony corals in the deep ocean. In fact, there are lots and lots of stony corals in the deep ocean. But not, but only relatively few deep ocean stony corals build frameworks mm -hmm. they build a skeleton that that has a complex three-dimensional structure and that complex three-dimensional structure if it builds up over time just traps things so it traps sediments sands and muds that are moving on the seafloor and uh, you know if that um if the corals keep up with the sediments that are otherwise trying to bury them you get very large mounds developing over time it takes hundreds to thousands of years to happen um but if it does, these things can be 10 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters. And then over very long periods of time, and I'm talking now in, in the northern high latitudes and, and, and you know, southern latitudes going closer to the poles where ice sheets used to exist, the corals tend to boom when the ice sheets go, go back in the interglacial times. And then they die off when the glaciers come back and the water gets really, really cold and the food dies back. So we can actually see huge mounds that have grown back even between glacial and interglacial cycles. And the places that are really best known for this are off Scotland and Ireland, and they're called coral carbonate mounds. These can be 100, 150 meters above the surrounding seafloor. Just for a sense of scale, that's nearly 500 feet. They were drilled back in 2005. Scientists drilled all the way through one of these mounds. It was an extinct mound, no live coral anymore. But at the base of the mound, people wanted to know what had caused it to start growing. And there was a theory back then um, that the mounds might relate to hydrocarbon seepage. So the seepage of oils or fluids that are rich in gas, perhaps. And that somehow fueled these corals to grow. But nobody really knew. I remember at the time we were quite sceptical. We felt as biologists that these were animals that relied on the surface. They weren't relying on the, on the geosphere or oil or gas seepage. And sure enough, when people drilled through that mound, what they found all the way from top to bottom in various sequences was cold water coral remains. So these were reefs, one stacked on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, building up over time. And they're huge structures. And that's been one of the most exciting findings really in the last 30 years is just how widespread those things are and how significant they are as habitats. I would have never guessed, and I feel like it should be obvious, but I would have never guessed that cold water corals did the exact same thing. Well, we seemed... weren't sure. I mean, and, and, and there are different types mm -hmm. of coral that are out there. Right. There's some that brood, mm -hmm. but the ones that build these big reef frameworks, they're mm -hmm. spawning. You know, they are mass spawning and they are adapted, you know, to get out there. And indeed, mm -hmm. we've been looking at that in various ways. So, for instance, in the North Sea, uh, east of Scotland, so between Scotland and Scandinavia and Europe, 
over the last 50 years, the oil and gas industry have put lots of rigs in and there's been a lot of drilling. Well, the, many of those rigs are now covered in cold water corals um, <laughs> because those larvae are spreading all over mm. the place. And you give them something hard to settle on and they settle and they grow. Mm. Similar things have been seen in the Gulf of Mexico, other parts of the world. You see corals of this type growing on shipwrecks in the deep ocean. So they're spreading like crazy. And, you know, that does give me some hope. And we might mm -hmm. talk about this later as we talk about how the ocean changes. Mm -hmm. We need to understand, well, where are places going to be resilient to those changes? And how can we help nature recover in the future? Right. So we are definitely going to talk about that. But before we talk about it, I have to go one more question relating to the, bio or the biology of these corals. What other biological adaptations allow these corals to survive the icy temperatures and crushing pressures and depths? Like, yeah. do they have any other weird biological adaptations that their warm water cousins don't? Just given? So corals are fantastic things, uh, and, and they are highly adaptable. Uh, they're quite simple, but that simplicity kind of belies a lot of clever tricks that they've got up their sleeve. So uh, they're in the phylum Cnidaria. The jellyfish, the corals, the zoanthids, all these very simple animals that only have two cell layers. And in between the cell layers, they have something called mesoglea, which is jelly, actually. Now, in the jellyfish, that mesoglea is really thick. It's the jelly of the jellyfish. But the corals, they all have that. And these two cell layers and this very simple body design has been elaborated. And it's been a real evolutionary success story. So if you go right back through geological time, you'd see things that look like corals pretty much consistently. And when the carbon cycle of the earth changes and the earth moves into a greenhouse climate, as happens uh, over time, say there's lots of volcanoes that liberate a lot of CO2 and it changes the carbon cycle. Well, the corals tend to disappear, but they probably have persisted as soft-bodied animals that then reacquire their skeletons, I mean, as, as these species evolve and change over time. Mm -hmm. So corals have got lots of tricks up their sleeve. And to answer your question about the crushing pressures and the cold temperatures, well, if you're just two cell layers and jelly, you're just a water-filled bag. So the pressure in that sense doesn't matter to you. You know, you can live mm -hmm. shallow, you can live deep. I can take a deep sea coral from uh, a thousand meters and I can grow it in my lab. Now, the pressure may have an effect on the biochemistry in some subtle way that we don't yet understand, but the animal actually deals with it really well. Now, if I'd taken a bony fish with a swim bladder, poor fish, that swim bladder, as the pressure is reduced, it, the swim bladder comes through the, the mouth, the poor fish dies. It's, it's really a bad scene. So yeah. different animals have, have, have different strategies. Corals are very simple. Again, they're adapted to the cold temperatures. If I took my coral and I didn't keep it cold, as I brought it back up through the thousand meters, the temperature change would kill it very quickly. So we, what we do is we sample them very carefully. We put them in things called bio boxes, which are just uh, often plexiglass with a thick wall. So they're, so they're insulated uh, if there's any temperature change, so they come back up. And actually it's been very, really relatively easy to then work out techniques uh, to keep the corals alive in aquaria. So I guess the true takeaway here is if you are ever feeling the crushing existential pressure of life, become a jelly-filled sack. I'm kidding, of course. Thank you, Dr. Murray Roberts, for enlightening us on the natural history and biological sciences of this very unique cold water animal. Join us next week as we discuss the existential threats that coral face that they are not equipped to handle and practical solutions on how they can be preserved for generations to come. See you next week.